0: Banning the Nerdosphere, talking about everything you want to hear. From comics to cosplay, from the cinematic universe to fan films, and everything in between. It's time to get down and nerdy. Here are your hosts, James Witham and Nick Pataglia.
1: Here we are in episode 136 of the Down and Nerdy podcast, that magical time of year where Reese's Pumpkins turn into, well, Reese's pumpkins again and get rasta,
2: wrapped up as Reese's trees. Yeah, pretty much. Or candy corn goes right in the trash. You ever wonder, like you ever gone through a store and seem like a bag of candy corn. You're like, does it come like with a pack of insulin? Like buy two packs of candy corn, get two packs of insulin for free.
1: Actually, B- Wilford Brimley comes to your house if you buy candy corn. <laughs> That's the tradition on Halloween. If you walk backwards and buy candy corn, Wilford Brimley will show up at your house.
2: He just shames you,
1: <laughs> pretty much. Now you know you're going to need me here
2: soon. <laughs> <laughs> now, Nick, you have one arm. You know, if you keep on eating candy at the rate you're going to be eating it at, you're going to be losing another limb. He,
1: if you lost a leg on that side, you just fall over all the time. He's
2: like, like on, on Halloween, Wilford Brimley is like the
1: ghost of Christmas future where he's just death.
2: Like, he's just like... <laughs> like, he points at, like, the sugar plum fairies and stuff like that. No, he just points at, like, your, like, what a. You're going to be losing if you keep on eating, you know, a thousand Reese's peanut butter cups in one sitting.
1: Although I think the awakening would be slightly different in a Halloween version of a Christmas carol. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Very much, about let's introduce ourselves, I'm the Merc with one arm, Nick Pataglia,
1: alongside James Witham, and man, last week, I can't tell you how much fun it was talking to Arvin, Ethan David with Dirk Gently, man, it was just so awesome. Well, yeah,
2: man, I mean, this is a guy who is just so passionate about, you know, a property in Dirk Gently, where you know he's ordering his own yellow leather jacket, you know, he did a play on Dirk Gently, you know, he was just having so much fun, you just hear the joy and Excitement! I mean, it is such a great show on BBC America, and IDW Publishing has a surefire hit with the Dirt gently comics because they're so quirky and fun and very interesting. And speaking of IDW, this week, James. We're boldly going into space with them this week.
1: That's right, because we're gonna, gonna be talking to a long time Star Trek writer, actually, Mike Johnson. But we've got that brand new series, like you were talking about Boldly Go, which is taking place after the events of Star Trek Beyond. It's a really neat series. Can't wait to dive into that and talk to Star Trek in general, because we're celebrating the 50th anniversary, and it's just, it's, I mean, 50 years of Star Trek. What
2: else can you really say? I mean, again, man, 50 years of Star Trek, as you just mentioned, it's just, again, one of the longest-running properties out there. It's so fun to see a property like that have such a long and prosperous life. And, you know, I think that when you see what Mike's doing with this Boldy Go series, and what's great about it, too, is if you haven't seen star trek beyond you don't have to worry because you can just dive right into this comic and not be lost it's a great feeling
1: right i mean basically anything you'd get spoiled for you you already see it in the trailers anyway that much we can tell you so it's not like you're gonna go and it's like oh spoiler alert from the trailers you kind of get the gist of why everything's happening the way it is and, and boldly go so it's a great series and a lot of great art and if you're a big star trek fan
2: you're going to want to hear about this yeah, man, it's going to be a lot of fun, but coming up next, it's what we're reading. We have two new comics this week. Where are they? Stay tuned and find out. More Down and Nerdy is coming up next. This is Arvind, and David, executive producer of Dirt Gently's Holistic Detective Agency, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well, it's that time, nerds. We pull out our long boxes and we discuss what we're reading this week. And James, since I talked about Atari's art book last week first on the show, I'm going to give you the floor for this week.
1: Oh, it's exciting. Coming off the heels of Halloween, why not dive into the horror realm with the new imprint of Titan Comics called Hammer Comics, and it's The Mummy number one. And now the title, you know how every comic has like a subtitle now? Right. Well, the subtitle for this one is Pomp Assessed, and basically what that means is if you look it up, it's basically something reused or altered, but still bearing visible traces of its earlier form. And once you read this book, written by Peter Milligan and Ronaldson Fieri, colors by Ming Sen, and lettering by Simon Boland, you'll understand exactly why it has that title. Now, when you first open up the pages of this book, you're reading it, and you're going, oh, this is exactly what I wanted. I mean, it's it's right in the, night. you know, it's right, with, it's exactly what you expect and the time period you expect and everything like that, and you get through the first, I would say, five, six pages. And then something happens where you go, what? Wait a minute. What What just happened? But in a good way, not in the, you know, well, this book is screwed way, in a way where you go, I did not see that coming. It was really interesting.
2: Now, I haven't read this yet. Is it more stylized? I know we talked off here how, you know, it's easy to spoil this book, but just, you know, give a little bit of information here. Is it based kind of like on the Brendan Fraser mummy? Is it more no. action? No, it's <laughs> very not horror-esque. at
1: all. It's very much based on what you would expect from like an old Universal monster oh, type movie. It oh, is, good. It so is it's,
2: definitely true to form into that. Oh, oh, good. So it's not like an action adventure. It's more of a strict, straight up horror.
1: There is a curveball in here. Like I said, and I can't really—I spo- don't want to spoil it because it's one of those moments that I felt when I was reading the book that was really important to just capture the reader. And it's one of those things that just grabs you because you're happy with the way it's going, but then when the curve comes, it's just such a sudden shock and surprise that you're like, "Wow, I can't believe this!" Uh, they decided to take it in that direction, but in a good way. When you get introduced to who ends up being this the main character, who is a Russian woman. I can tell you that much, and circumstances surrounding why she's important in this book are part of the swerve that happens, and let's just say that she starts to think she's losing her mind and all of these other things, and she's saying things and seeing things that she hadn't before because of the swerve that happens, and it's just really, really interesting that the way that they set this up, and I, I got to say that there are a couple times, and you want to talk about horror, one of the things that I think horror makes great horror, and this is just a personal preference, is when you focus less on the gore and more on the eerie and things that just generally make you feel uncomfortable. And there are a couple moments in this book and it's a couple panels, especially, where you felt that uneasiness and uncomfortability when you're reading. I'm like, see, this is exactly what I wanted when I saw that this book was coming out.
2: Yeah, I'm glad to hear that. I'm glad to hear that this book is based on, of course, you know, the roots. Of horror, which again really were especially back in like the old Universal days, which I've said in the show a lot how I love those, my favorite types of you know old horror monster movies are the old Universal black and white films. You know, you go back to the things that go bump at night and kind of the eerie factor and the weirdness mm-hmm. of it at all. You know, you don't focus on the drill going through the guy's skull or right. you know guts exploding everywhere. No, it's, it's that certain level of being grounded that really. You know, it gives it, even though you're talking about mummies and vampires and stuff like that, it gives it a sense of realism. It gives it a sense of this, you know, in the back of your mind, you're like, this could maybe happen, even though it couldn't, but you're still like, there's, you know what I'm saying? It, right. it kind of turns you a little bit in terms of that. Uh, how's the art in this? The
1: art is fantastic. I mean, Ronaldson Fury. I mean, wow. I, I've never, I, I will say that that's a name that I don't recognize from past comics that I've read. Where has this person been? all of our life, because there's a couple span- panels especially, like, there's one where, and this isn't a spoiler, because it doesn't really reveal anything, where a doorway sort of opens, and I mean, props to the colorist as well, because working together, I mean, Ming Sen, ah, it's just such a striking visual, and sort of leads you to that big swerve that, that I was talking about, so it's just, it captures everything you would want in a in a horror book, and it brings you back to that old time that the monster movies that you loved. And for me, if the mummy isn't my favorite universal monster, the mummy is a close second for sure. So I was just so happy when I got through this book and the the, the ending leads you right into it. And you're like, oh, now I want issue two right now. And that's when we found out that this imprint was coming. From Titan Comics, just we're going to have a horror imprint, and we're going to focus on doing things the way that they're supposed to be done. The writing is authentic. I mean, you've got the um, you've got references like to Osiris, and you see visuals of temples and stuff. And the Eater of Souls is in this too as well. There's just a lot of stuff that's very authentic about this book. I got to put this in my pull box immediately.
2: Well, you know, for me, I'm heading over to the Valiant universe and really talk about the movie stuff they have planned real quick. You know, we all know that they had Bloodshot was supposed to be their first foray into, you know, big budget live action films. Well, they switched it up and said, you know what, we're going to make Harbinger our first live action film, you know, for the big screen. And I can see why because right now that my comic this week is Harbinger Renegade number one and pretty much what this is is now this comes out November 16th. And what this is, is fast forward six months now, all these files about the Harbinger stuff came out through the Renegades releasing them. And so now you have all these people know that these Harbingers, these Psyots exist, that everybody has the potential to be a Psyot, you know, through a, a very, very, uh, painful and really, you know, uh, Horrifying surgery that could lead to mostly death uh, to unlock your your ability to fly or be telekinetic or what have you, and so pretty much what the story deals with is now that people know, especially the younger generation, knows that we can unlock these powers, they're trying to use a Agents of Shield reference. To put everybody through Terra genesis except in the Harbinger format of Terra genesis. See, this is a very interesting twist. So I'm just trying to make sure I'm
1: understanding this right. So basically, unlike kind of just discovering that you have powers, you can actually choose to unlock powers
2: that are within you, kind of right. thing. That's right. very interesting. You can you right, and it's one of those things where again, the way that I'm, I haven't gotten to who's done this book yet. Because the way it's broken up is it's broken up in three parts. There's an introduction, which, of course, is written by – the whole thing's written by Ray, uh, Rafer Roberts. And the whole art stuff is all separated throughout the book by different people. Uh, so it's set up in three different pieces. It's a 35-page book, but set up into an introduction, which pretty much highlights the events leading up into – Uh, Harbinger Renegade, and to when you get into the real meat of the story, there's a prologue that kind of sets up a little bit of, you know, where were we, you know, a few months ago. And then you have the story, which takes place now. So it's kind of a, a really brilliant. Piecing together a culmination of, you know, if you're somebody who hasn't read Harbinger lately or really a lot of Valiant stuff, this is something you can dive into and not feel lost because the introduction pretty much tells you who everybody is, what happened, why they did what they did. And, you know, you mentioned the whole thing about having powers. And again, it's one of those things that the introduction talks about is before these files were released by the Renegades. People didn't know about psions really, or, or that they everybody had this power within them, and they can unlock it if they chose. But again, by the only way you can do that is by going through a very you know dangerous procedure. Mm-hmm. And we see in the book how dangerous it can be, especially with some of the people that they're that these these new bad guys I'll say are targeting. To, to unlock these new things. And I just got to say this, the art style is done really well. Like, when you read the introduction and you're reading about different things that are happening, like, the art is done in a great way where, like, when you're, like, parts of the story is like, okay, you know how, like, on taxicabs they have the top part of the, on the roofs, they have yeah, the yeah. advertisements? Part of the story is on the advertisement box. Wow, that's, that's very interesting. And, like, when they're talking about, you know... All these different, you know, um, Psyots and, and, you know, people who were the renegades, they have, like, you know, little character posters, like, on a brick wall. Like, it's very stylized. It's very, very well done. Uh, but, again, the story, if there's something about this that really gets through is the tension aspect of it. Because, you know, now that people know that these things are happening, that these people, you know, exist, anybody anybody can be a Psyot. Mm-hmm. People are afraid. You have the NSA coming in here questioning somebody who's a very much interest, who's going to be playing a role as pretty much the story progresses. Uh, you have, you know, again, very much tension filled uh, ideas because you have this people that say, you know what, we're psyops, we're not going to be oppressed anymore. So it's again, it's going across that grain of like, oh my god, you know this whole big giant war is about to happen because this is going to lead into Harbinger Wars too. So you're seeing right off the bat the way this is being written that you're just like, wow, like this is very, not fast-paced, but the way that they set it up is brilliant. The art is really, really good. And, I mean, the opening part of it, like, you know, the, the uh, prologue, if you will, just so action-packed, and there's just points where it's just kind of like just the way it's written, just some of the dialogue. It's very witty and stuff like that, and there's some, a little bit of humor put into here as well, uh, but it's a fun book. It's really, really interesting, and uh, I mean, the art style, I mean, everything's just so beautiful, and it's it's very detailed, and it has a nice little flatness to it as well. You know, it's not hyper, you know, realistic and stuff like that. It's very grounded, which is nice. Nice. And you see this book, and you see what they're doing in this. Uh, it's very, very awesome. The only thing I will say that's a little bit of a negative about this book is when they do close-ups of people, like extreme close-ups, they look like scary dolls. Okay, I understand what you're saying. Like, it's one of those things where they're trying to emit like, excitement, like, that's what they are trying to get through, but the excitement transitions into, like, petrified dolls kind of a thing. Uh, I see what you're saying. So, okay. I mean, that's my only, you know, it's, it's, it could be nitpicky, but that's my only I thing. I mean, if that's your only criticism, that's that's still pretty darn good, if you ask me. But, I mean, overall, like, you know, everything that's going on with this is is awesome. It's, some of the art, too, there's a certain scene in here that's uh, really graphic, but it's super awesome, though, in a sense, because it's just... Again, adds to the dangers of what these, these villains, the, this group of you know outsiders is trying to do with people by unlocking their powers. So, I mean, it's really interesting. It's really, really fun. Uh, again, this comes out the 16th of November. Harbinger Renegade, number one, from Valiant is a definite pull for me.
1: I will say the same thing about Mummy, number one. And I know Rafer Roberts has been with Valiant for a long time, and I was very happy to see his name attached to this book. And
2: that's going to do a physics edition of what we're reading. But come up next, we're heading into the world of Stan Lee and anime. That's right, because we have a new trailer we're going to talk about coming up next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast.
0: Hi, this is Wim Everett, and I'm from Marvel's Agent Carter, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast.
1: Stan Lee's created a lot of heroes, this time going to be a little bit different, not just because it has nothing to do with Marvel, but because the fact that it's anime as well. So Nick, let's dive into the trailer that debuted at LA Comic Con for The Reflection.
2: Yeah, no, this isn't the first time Stan Lee's done anime. He's previously worked on stuff like Hero Man, he co-created the manga Ultimo, Mm -hmm. uh, with uh, Shaman King writer uh, Hiroki Takei. And so, I mean, you know, you, this isn't his foray, but we watched the trailer, of course, for The Reflection, which debuted at Stanley's Comic-Con over the weekend in Los Angeles. And I love anime. I'm not sure how you feel about anime. I'm not a huge fan of the anime style, and I can't really
1: find many that I like. I did like the Voltron series that was on Netflix. I liked that. Speed Racer, which was kind of like at the, almost at the dawn of anime, I would, I would say. Uh, I did like that, but as a rule, I'm not a huge anime fan. But, when
2: I saw this trailer, I, I was like, hey, this looks pretty nice. Now, the trailer, of course, talking about it, is of course, for Stanley's Reflection, and the thing about this trailer is, outside of the song that's playing it, because it's only about a minute and 30 trailer, the, it's <laughs> you just get a look at the animation, what it is. I think that's really important. And the fact is, you know, when we were watching this, I was telling you, I was like, this really doesn't seem like an anime animation. It feels like an older style of animation. Probably something you'd see like, you know, in the 80s maybe or maybe 70s, but I mean, it just has that old ska- style look to it, which felt pretty pretty nice to look at. I
1: would bridge that by saying late 80s turning to the 90s animation style. That's kind of the way I felt about it. You know, you like a Nickelodeon type of turn the corner animation style. I think that that's kind of what i would liken it to um i do think that it it just looked we were talking about this off the air to how it just looks fun now basically in the trailer if you've seen it it's a lot of flying let's just let's yeah it's, a, it's just put flying. it out there right now and it actually looks like like Soundwave decided to say screw it throw on a cape and be a superhero <laughs> instead of a transformer which is and there's nothing wrong with that either i mean well, he like, went well, he went digital it's okay well,
2: well, like Meta Knight just grew a Bigger body and decide I'm gonna go flying around. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> the Templars decided to get with the times.
1: <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, but no, it just seems it just seems really really fun. And of course, you get that shot of uh, Stanley and this Japanese-esque like big type billboard sort of thing, and you don't really know. What to expect, I mean, well, other than the description that they gave us, which was basically saying, you know, some people have gotten powers, some people will turn into villains, some people will turn into heroes, basically your typical, you know, hero-type story. So it'll be very interesting to see, once we get more of this, what we're going to have.
2: Yeah, man, so, I mean, you know, and one thing I want to point out, too, is just, again, back to the art style of this, you know, when they show, you know, the reflection flying around and stuff like that, the ground, it looked like very common, so you see in a comic book panel. Like mm. it really did. Because the way that the, the trees looked, everything kind of looks flat a little bit when, you know, you have the above shot of, of them flying. You know, it's, it's pretty interesting. It's, it's again, it's that it's simplistic feeling, that, that older feeling style. I think it's going to grab a lot of anime fans. Especially those who who are are older in the older demographics. So I mean I'm looking forward to this. I can't wait to watch it. I think it's be a lot of fun. Do we want this to feel more like a motion
1: comic than in true anime? That could be something that they're going for.
2: That could literally be something that they're going for possibly. Because I'm not upset about that if that's what they want to do. not at all, man. And again, you know, we didn't get to see really a, a full on you know, as we mentioned earlier in the weeks, you know a good 10-minute trailer. Yeah, right. You know, yeah, right. This, you know with, the, with the making of, you know, the reflection. But I think that, you know, when you watch this, it has a fun feeling to it. Uh, I, I'm thoroughly enjoyed by it. I can't wait to learn more about it. So with that, you know, we can't really give our ratings because, again, this isn't something we haven't seen. We've only seen a minute 30, but let's just highlights something that we hope we see and something that we hope we don't see in this. And if you want to go first, feel free. I hope
1: we see characters that aren't just like the character that we saw in this trailer. I hope we see more variety. I hope like every hero i I guess this is what i'm looking for and what i hope i don't see i hope we see other characters that aren't just like the character that we saw that has powers i hope we see a little bit more variety not everybody's going to be like in a mask and a suit and stuff like that i'm not saying like give me the everyman with powers no i'm just saying i want to see a little variety costume wise and i hope that that's exactly what we get and i think that that's probably what we will get
2: uh something that, that i hope we see is you know to kind of build off what you just said. Uh, I think what makes a story very interesting, of course, is the characters you put in it. But I think the really more interesting characters are the ones you don't expect to become superheroes. I mean, for example, if you have like somebody who's like a marine or a soldier, what have you, you know, odds are they're gonna be a strong, you know, and, and know what to do when they're put in tough situations. But I like to see somebody who's like does taxes for a living, you know, like what would <laughs> they do if they're given powers? Because again, it's it's a different idea of thinking. It's not a lot less tactical, totally. it's more on the fly. And I think it makes, you know, they're, they're, they're falling into danger, if they were to fall into danger, uh, a little bit more interesting. Actually, a lot more interesting because it's like, you, you don't think, like, okay, this person's a soldier, they're obviously going to get out of this. It's like, no, this person's like, the only danger they've ever had was, like, you know, making sure that their tie doesn't get stuck in a blender. You know what I mean? Like, outside right. of that, you know, they haven't really f- had much danger, so you don't know what situations they would, you know, put, you know, f- be put in and how they would react. So I think that makes it really interesting in the whole decision-making process. Uh, and, and that's something I hope we see. And again, something I hope we don't see is I hope we don't see characters who, I th- and this happens, I think, in a lot of animes, or a good amount of animes, where you should have a good couple of characters who are very moody. Like, they're very, like... Mm-hmm. The world sucks, or I'm or just sad. That's like, definitely true of Attack on Titan, I'll say that.
1: Yeah. I will say that. Not that I don't like Attack on Titan, but that is true of that show.
2: Yeah, that's what, that's what I hope we don't see. But other than that, I mean, I'm looking very much forward to this. I don't want it to be too campy either. That's another thing I
1: hope I don't see. I wanted to throw that out there. I don't want it to be too campy. I mean, if you want to throw humor in there, it's a little lightheartedness, there's nothing wrong with that. Like you said, I don't want it to be moody. But I don't want it to be completely campy either. You know what I mean?
2: I know exactly what you mean, but that's going to do it for this week's review and look at the reflection from Stan Lee and, of course, director Hiroshi Nagahama. But come up next with a bunch of nerd news to dive into on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Joe Henderson, showrunner for Lucifer,
0: and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast.
2: Well, nerds, it is that time where we go around the sewers of the internet and we discuss what's trending on the internet because it's time for what, James? No news, and we travel around the sewers of the internet because, well, you know Teenage Ninja Turtles. We love it. We love the comics, the movies, the shows. What's not to love about them? Well, you would think that after uh, the shadows, they say, "Okay, we're gonna go to a third Turtles movie. Where we're gonna maybe see Baxter Stockman go." to his ammo form and stuff like that well apparently that's not the case at all.
1: Yeah and it looks like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 3 is not going to be happening and matter of fact there was an interview with one of the producers Andrew Form recently that uh, comicbook.com picked up I think it was from Collider and he said we were obviously surprised at the box office results you know for Out of the Shadows. He said we love the movie we love making the movie from our first Super Bowl teaser to everything we launched we felt so good about our material and for some reason did not find the audience
2: that the first movie found, and here's the thing is that he mentions the whole box office thing. And you wonder, like, well, what were the numbers for it? Well, let's go back to 2014 when the first live action Turtles movie came back. You know, as a as a, a reboot effort and stuff like that. The domestic total gross on that movie was 191.2 million dollars, and the production budget was 125 million. Ah, the shadows. Okay, people are saying we got Bebop, we got Rocksteady, Shredder's back. You know. It looks more like what we wanted from the first Turtles movie. You know, a lot less April O'Neil, more focus on the Turtles and the bad guys and stuff. A production budget of $135 million, It only made $82 million. It's really weird because
1: you would think that... I mean, throw a Krang in there as well. I mean, You'd right. think that with all of that, that as true Turtle fans as we are, and we know many people that are, uh, you'd be jacked for that. But at the same time, I think that people hat took a, I think maybe, I mean, call me crazy, but maybe Batman versus Superman had a little bit of an effect on this. And the reason I say that is is that what was one of the main complaints going into that was that there were going to be too many cooks in the kitchen and it would be jumbled and everything like that. And I think people had that kind of attitude going into this movie as well. We're like, okay, yeah, I want to see Bebop, Rocksteady, and Baxter Sockman and all these people, but did you have to put them all in the same movie?
2: I don't think that that's the case at all because, you know, when you see the movie, you know, as I saw it, you know, I loved it because, it's again, it's a movie that, if you're a fan of the animated show, you're like, yes, this is exactly what I wanted. And the thing is, is when you see this and when you saw it, it wasn't the fact that there was too many people in the kitchen. It was the fact of, I look at the release date, which was June 3rd. Had this movie been released, uh, well, so you can't go favorite February because Deadpool would have just dominated it and we have gotten lost in the shuffle. But if you release, like, January... Like around there, like before Deadpool started, we know the air it and release it during a time where there's not a lot coming out in the theaters, you know, maybe or maybe if you pushed it to into the fall or whatever. Like, 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 well, not October really, but more, yeah, like October, September, you know, like I said, that that dead zone period, you know, that period when we're done with summer films and then what, and there's nothing else, like when, like, when I'm gonna say this. When Boo and Medea Halloween is dominating the box office, that's a perfect time to put a Ninja Turtles movie. Right, in
1: exactly. Bed. I mean, I know that it was just Halloween and all that stuff, but it was two weeks at number one. Come on, I mean, I know people love right. Medea and Tyler Perry. Hey, you were in both movies, were in Turtles and that. We love you, but. Uh Man, there's no reason that movie should be two weeks at number one. So I think October would have been a really perfect time. Like you said, there's been so many movies. And then you don't really compare it to much because there's been so many that that kind of gets lost in the shuffle. And you don't think, well, this was better than that because it was so long ago since the last blockbuster. So you put it out in October and let it stand on its own. And if you put it out at the right time, you're, again, like you said, talking about multiple weeks at number one and making some pretty good
2: money. Right, and and again, will we get a third Turtles movie? I would think so, but I I don't think it's going to be for a while. Or it's probably gonna be another thing where we wait four to five years and then they come out with a new. God, I hope thing. they don't do that. I hope they don't reboot it again.
1: I mean, I just want to see them try and continue with this because I think they have got something. I if just...
2: anything, if if anything started to cut you off, but if anything, I mean, I know they got the, t- the the Nickelodeon show and stuff like that, but if they were to do like a brand new like 2D animated show, I would be up for that too. I mean, if they wanted to do a new show,
1: I wouldn't be. I certainly wouldn't be opposed to that. I just think the Turtles belong in the big screen too, and I, I wish that. Uh, this second movie would have done a little bit better, but I, I do think that even though it was a huge loss uh, financially, that that it just seems like it's a little early to throw in the towel to me.
2: But again, I mean, it, it depends on how much it's going to cost. Depends on how much they want. If they say, "Okay, we're going to do a third turtles movie," where could you go from there? Because you already introduced Crane, Shredders in there, so it's it's kind of a thing like well, where could we take this next? Because when you're coming off the first one, you could say, okay we can throw in Crane and the whole other world thing, and Bebop and Rock Steady. but again, you look at, like, well, who else can they throw in afterwards, you know? I think that
1: your point about Baxter Stockman stands.
2: I mean, I think that that's, that's kind of who you I think you'd focus on
1: in a third movie, but, I mean, I understand maybe that's a risk too. I don't know, but it just seems weird to, to not do this, I guess, for me.
2: Yeah, it really does. Especially, well, I think it's I think it's weird for for both of us because there's just so much turtle stuff out there. You know, what right, I mean, right, right. You know, I mean, there's still toys being pumped out. There's still a lot of cool things, with and they're selling out. right. And I think that that's I think the more confusing aspect of it is that turtles is still one of the most highly successful brands out there, but the fact that the movie itself couldn't make its budget back, at least the second one couldn't, Right. when they were given, when they much gave everybody they, what they wanted. And I think that's what's most alarming, is that they gave people fans who weren't really fans of the first movie, to, even though it made a lot of money, you know, they're like, well, it didn't have Crank, it didn't have Bebop and Rocksteady. And then they finally gave the fans that, and the fact that it still didn't generate enough to make its money back, I think that's alarming in and of itself. I think that's probably why we won't get a third movie uh, for a while, if at all.
1: Yeah, and, and, and that's a shame, because I do think that there are places that you can go, and I, I think that they've they created such a nice vibe with this current cast and everything that's going on. I mean, I know that there's been misses. like uh, There's people that didn't enjoy Stephen Amell as, as Casey Jones and certain things like that. I get that there are misses in the casting of this second movie, but, I mean, I mean, there's even Karai with Brittany Ishibashi, who we had on the show, that they could focus on a little bit, too. So I feel like there are ways that they could go, especially if they wanted to play it off the animated series. I just wish that they would give this one another chance and lower the budget a little bit. You don't have to have a huge budget villain in the movie to make it a successful movie, I don't think, at least not too much, anyway.
2: Well, again, I think that, you know, before we move on to our next story, I think the, the thing is, too, is, You know, you're doing big CG turtles. You know, you're not doing, you know, rubber suits or anything like that. So, we don't know how much does it cost per turtle, you know, Master Splinter, you know. So, it's different. You know, times are changing. So, it's going to be different. But something that's changing as well, of course, we reported a little while back, actually, that, you know, Tim Miller left Deadpool 2. I believe we actually reported it last week. talked about it on the show, how he left Deadpool 2 over creative differences. Well, he's got a new project, and he's going from the Merkle with a Mouth, to the blue blur, yes, I'm talking about Sonic the Hedgehog. I and
1: mean, this is just weird to me, and I, maybe yeah. it's because of the transition. Of course, The Hollywood Reporter was the first one to break the story. You go from the raunchy, F-bomb-driven Deadpool to the family-friendly Sonic the Hedgehog. I, I don't know, man. I don't know about this one.
2: I don't know, well, especially because you're reading about the plan and what he wants to make it, and it's like, oh, we want to do a hybrid CG animated live-action movie. Please, for the love of Christ, no. Like, no, just don't do it, man. Like, don't do that, because it's like, you know, people. because, I mean, you saw how it happened. Like, like, Elephant and the Chipmunks, I think, is the only thing that can get away with it, because it is one of those things where it's right, like, right. you know, animated creatures in a real world scenario. But, I mean... For example, there was, I want to go back uh, a while ago, I think it was to last year, they had two trailers, like two teasers that got released. Uh, one was for a Hong Kong fooey movie that was supposed to star uh, Eddie Murphy. And it was a live-action, you know, CG mixture. And then there was a Marvin the Martian movie, which was a live-action CG mixture. And they never got made. Nope. And whenever you look at stuff like that, like that's a CG, you know, animated live-action mix, it doesn't really go over well. And, like, this is Sonic the Hedgehog, so... It's going to look... I think when you have, like, Robotnik and you have, like, the whole Eggman carrier and stuff like that, like it's going to look freaking weird as hell, you know? It's, if, yeah. if, if anything, like, worst
1: case scenario, this could look like another Pixels. I mean, why don't you go and ask Neil Patrick Harris how that Smurfs thing worked out? I mean, yeah. this, is, this is just not a good idea. It seems like ever since Who Framed Roger Rabbit... People are looking for that way to bring a animated or animated CG world into the real world, and it just doesn't always work that way. I mean, even Brad Pitt's Cool World, which was which was not bad as far as the, as crossing the two over there, but at least in the in that vacuum, those made sense. In this case, you're just doing it just to do it because I don't know. Maybe it makes the budget easier, and obviously, you don't want to see a felt suit version of Sonic on the screen. I mean, I mean, to, I totally get that, but why not? What is the problem with doing an animated movie? There are so many animation projects. Fox still does kind of an animation domination thing that's geared towards adults. And why isn't it possible for you to do an animated movie on the big screen? Because kids will gravitate to it. The adults that loved Sonic, like you and I, will gravitate to it because you want to see what it's going to be like even if you think it's going to be horrible because video game adaptations and all that stuff but i don't
2: see what's so scary about just trying to do an animated movie and here's the thing too is that this whole project in general the sonic the hedgehog movie in general is a very dangerous thing to be attached to because look at the games the games aren't that popular anymore it's it's one of those things where You you would have like a good Sonic game recently, and then like Sega would try to. The main problem with Sega is that they try to, in a sense, they have something that would be good, like a good game. They have some good mechanics. Go back to what made Sonic so great, and then they try to rework and recreate the tire, you know, and and reinvent the wheel. Right. And and that's the problem is where they couldn't just say, okay, we have this great idea, let's mold it into the next phase and build on that. It's like. Okay, this game has this. Let's reinvent the wheel. What can we do? Let's make everything more different, and how can we build on that? So that's, that's I think, the main issue when it comes to the games. Um, the more the more recent ones, at least, they're on the console. But I think that when you look at this, this movie and just what they want to do with it, like, it's just going to be so weird, man. Yeah, like, and then what if you don't weird. cast...
1: And then what if – I'm sorry to cut you off, but what if you – and then what if you don't cast Roger Craig Smith, who everybody knows is the voice of Sonic right. from the games? What if you have a totally different Sonic in the movie?
2: It's not going to make any sense. No, it's not. I mean, you know, it's just one of those things where you look at it and, I mean, as always, do we want this to succeed? Of course. Yeah. We want this to fail. But you have to look at, like, the recent history of Sonic and just see, like – okay where can we go from here and then just okay you know yeah. tread lightly as walter white said you know tread lightly not only that but why wouldn't you just do like
1: do an animated series at first dip your toe in the water a little bit i mean you know, i know that they've had some stuff uh, recently but you dip your toe in the water a little bit and say okay how is this going to be suc- how is this going to be accepted is this going to be something that's popular is it going to get good ratings? Are people going to enjoy it? And then you start thinking, okay, maybe we could try a feature. But I agree with you, man. I'm scared to death about this, and I think that this is a
2: feature that is probably at least 10 years too late. Yeah, man. But, I mean, something that's not too late, actually something that we got on, if you watch, a big fan of the Arrowverse, you watch Arrow and Flash Legends of Tomorrow, we got a little bit of a hint, with hint of Talia al Ghul. Of course, we saw her as a child, but now... Now, we're going to see her as an adult.
1: Oh, yes, we are, and I'm so excited about this. Lexa Doig is going to be playing Talia Algul. Of course, Variety broke that news just a couple days ago. I mean, if that name sounds familiar, she was in Continuum. She was in uh, SG-1, Stargate, and and V, which, you know, had its, had its popularity in, in its own time. But, man... I mean, she looks the part. She's got the combat uh, the combat training from other stuff that she's done. And this is a character that, I mean, people are going to say, oh, well, why don't we just make Arrow Batman show? People are going to bring that up again. You've already had Ra- Raish, You've already had Nessa. It just makes sense at this point to bring Tali in,
2: and she's going to be in the 10th episode this, is, this season. Guys, let me just say something about those people who complain about, oh, it's just going to be like a, bat, or, you know, a Batman with a bow and arrow. It's like, well... They do share a universe, so why is it such a big deal? Like, why is it a big deal we get Deathstroke and Raish and Talia and Nyssa? Like, why is it such a big damn deal? It's not. That's just the whole point. I mean, I don't know
1: why you don't do this if you have the opportunity. You know? You're not going to bring her into Gotham. You might as well use her in some capacity.
2: Yeah. Yeah, so they brought her into Gotham somehow. Even if they don't bring her into Gotham, somehow Jim Gordon finds a way to fuck up her life. Well, I think Gotham finds a way to bring as many people into Gotham as possible.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and that's not necessarily a bad thing either. I'm not saying that that's a bad thing. But every time I, I say, oh, Gotham's not going to be bringing this person in, and then there they are kind of thing. Right. But, I mean, I, don't, I just don't see what's wrong with this, especially once you've already got race in there. And I, I, what, what is wrong with it, though, is if she's not like a major focus mm-hmm. uh, of this season somehow, or at least in a future season, I will be disappointed. But speaking of Arrow... Spoiler alert! If if people haven't watched Arrow yet, can we just
2: agree that Tommy Merlin is Prometheus? I don't think we we can. It's it's got to be one of those things. There's got goddamn it. There's gonna be a point where Tommy Merlin is gonna come back. Like there's gotta be a moment. Like Flashpoint has happened. There's gotta be a moment where Tommy Merlin comes back. If this isn't it, and and
1: and there's a specific scene in this week's episode of Arrow which I won't describe. But when you see it, I, I already kind of suspected that he was going to be Prometheus anyway, Tommy Merlin. But when I saw that this scene, I'm like, I, I'm sold, man. And if they don't do it, I don't know who the hell it is at this I, point. I'm I'm just convinced now.
2: But going back to Talia, I think that here's something that I think is a really interesting reason to, to why I think they're going to bring her in. And I think it's why it's it's an important time to bring her in. Because remember, Nissa disbanded the League of Sh- League Assassins. Right. And so, I mean, you know, it's, it's going to be really
1: interesting. Well, and the other interesting part, going back to the whole Prometheus thing, is that is she friend or foe? Does she right. show up based on Oliver getting his ass kicked by Prometheus, or having a really hard time with this, and then you know, kind of word gets around sort of thing and she shows up like, hey you need to take care of this person because this person is very dangerous or maybe or, she's in league with him, I don't know or
2: or again, she could come in and see like that, what Nyssa has done and she can be like, a sister versus sister scenario, I mean yes. asked, I know Katrina Law is, is doing training day right now, but I mean, I would love to see her come back as Nyssa for at least a few episodes you know, and have kind of like sister versus sister kind of a thing. And, like, you know, Talia is... Because, remember, Talia, for the most part, has always been, really, the the daughter of Rache who's, like, you know, trying to get Batman to join and, and, mm-hmm. and you know, we can rule the world together and stuff like that. So she's been more raish really, than Nyssa has. And so... Could that be very interesting to see that, though? You know. Not only that, how does she feel about Sarah?
1: You get the right. Legends of Tomorrow kind of tie in there, and you're right; she's always been looking for that hostile takeover kind of thing. So it'll just be very interesting to see what role she plays, and if there's a swerve that involves her in there as well because of that very mindset that will either happen in Arrow or one of the other shows. But for right now, we know that she, we know she's going to be appearing in Arrow. I wouldn't be surprised, especially if people really love her portrayal, if we see her get one of those across the Arrowverse kind of deals, because we just found out that the the, the the DC TV shows made like $2 billion a year for uh, for Warner Brothers, and that's a big chunk of change, man, so they're not going anywhere anytime soon, and I think they're going to try and throw as much story as possible as they can into all these shows.
2: And our final store, we're staying within the DC Universe, but we're going more towards comics, and we're also going more towards the American military. Now, DC's All Access is Jason Inman. He's actually sending 20,000 comic books to U.S. troops overseas and their, fa- and their families and communities at home. But he's also like, he's, he wants to get this movement started and he wants to, I think it's a great thing that he wants to do. Absolutely. I
1: mean, this is up from the 10,000 that they did last year for the Comics for Soldiers program, and I'm just thinking about, you know, you see all the time, and uh, uh, Nick and I live in a very military-centric area where, you know, people are separated from their families. Uh, for a long time, and sometimes the only uh, means that they have with each other to communicate is either you know the written word or emails or even like a Skype or a satellite communication where you actually get to see and talk to your family. Just imagine the mom or the dad that's there on the ship or deployed overseas being able to read a comic with their child in real time together, right. where you know the parent has the comic on one and the child has the comic on the other, and you get to read it together in that venue. I think that that's just a great way to bring families together, I mean, reading in general, but any way you can spend time with kids, and, you know, kids just like us as adults, you know, you grow up with these superheroes, so kids will gravitate towards certain characters that maybe the parents loved too, so that's it's that shared bond that you can have even thousands of miles away.
2: Right, and of course, you know, he teamed up with Operation Gratitude to launch the Jowen comic drive for soldiers, and... You know, Inman himself is also a former Army veteran. He spent time in Iraq, so I mean, you know, this is a guy who's been a part of the military, wants to give back to the military, and again, as you mentioned, it's if you're somebody who is out to sea or or you're deployed overseas somewhere, again, you want people that be able to pick up that Aquaman or that Grayson or the Catwoman comic and be like, you know, have a conversation with your kids or even your loved ones, your wife, your girlfriend, you know, and stuff like that. So, I mean. What they're doing, I think, is is phenomenal. I think it's a great way to bring families together. And, I mean, they are looking for donations. What I want to do is, I know we don't do a lot, but, I, but this is important. We, yeah. we live in a, a military town. We live in Virginia Beach. Here's how you can donate. You can fill out the donation form. As, it's tinyurl.com slash drive. It's J-A-W-I-I-N comic drive. And pretty much you fill out the form. Box and ship comics and a donation form to Operation Gratitude. It's twenty one one hundred Lassen Street, L A S S E N. It's in Chatsworth, California, zip code nine one three one one. Again, it's important you put a donation form in every box if they're especially if they're part of the same donations because you know, it's just important to, to get that in there. Uh, you can send a picture of comics, a number of books you're donating as well to JowincomicDrive one gmail at gmail.com. And again, just, just, I mean, I'm looking at my shelf. I'm thinking of giving some away too. Because I, you know, I, I've I, because of certain circumstances, I've gone digital. So I'm trying to think, like, if there's any books I might not read that I think that, you know, military families would enjoy, and mm-hmm. you know, bonding over, you know, what could I give? And so, I mean, again, if you can give a comic or a whole you know, long box full, it, it goes a long way.
1: Totally. we'll be putting this up on our website as well, down and nerdypodcast.com. We'll make it a little bit easy for you. We put it in the this week section, uh, which of course covers the the entire show, where you can find out uh, where you can get this link and actually go fill out the form and everything like that. We'll put the information up there to make it a little bit easier for you. If you weren't able to like write it down just then or anything, we'll make sure we'll put it up at down and nerdypodcast.com because, like you said, we don't do this very often. But this is an initiative that's important especially in and for soldiers and not just with connecting their families but these people need a release. I mean the the amount of time that they put in and the stress that they're under and the just I mean you just never know when bad things could happen or when you know you're going to get that call and you got to go on missions and stuff like that. And even in the in the times where you're just occupying I mean it's it's very stressful to be away from your family and away from your familiar surroundings for that long. You need a release and comics can absolutely provide that release for people. Even if they're not huge fans of comics, just being able to give somebody some sort of sense of anything but the what's going on around them, I think is really important for the military.
2: And that's going to do it for this week's edition of Nerd News Coming up Next, we're boldly going with Star Trek because we're going to be talking to the writer of Star Trek Boldly Go from IAW Publishing. Of course, his name is Mike Johnson. He's going to be joining us next on a down nerdy podcast. This
0: is Nathan Darrow from Gotham on Fox, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast.
1: This year we're celebrating 50 big years of Star Trek, and one of the books that caught Nick and I's eye this year was Star Trek Boldly Go from IDW Publishing. We've got the writer himself, a longtime Star Trek writer actually, Mike Johnson. Mike, how you doing?
0: I'm good. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me on.
1: Speaking of which, Mike, it's actually been a big year with the franchise celebrating its 50th anniversary. What's been the most memorable thing about being a part of that?
0: I think seeing the enthusiasm that fans and, and even, not even hardcore fans, but just, uh, you know, people have for Star Trek 50 years later, that it's such a part of, uh, pop culture and everybody knows who Kirk and Spock are and everybody tries to do the Vulcan greeting with their, uh, with their hands and, um, yeah, just sort of feeling the, the, uh, Feeling and seeing the expression of, of uh, appreciation and love for the franchise still going strong.
2: So, Mike, for many years, the big question amongst Trekkies has always been Kirk or Picard. But instead of asking you that question, which will go on until even long before we're go- long after we're gone, what sure. I will ask you is what makes not only a great captain but a memorable one.
0: Oh, that is a great question. Can I go for the easier? Kirk Picard. <laughs> but, uh, what makes a great captain? I think it comes down to personality, and actually using Kirk and Picard as examples because they're they're different guys. And when I, when you say when you hear personality, you immediately think of Kirk. He's sort of the more brash one, but but I think personality encompasses uh, demeanor. You know, your approach to problems, your approach to the crew, personality uh, includes leadership. And looking at Kirk and Picard as two examples of the best, you see that the things that they share are, first of all, I think a love of the job, which I think is is key. They, you know, it's not an easy job to go out for five years and be uh, out of contact and, and uh, explore strange new worlds, as they say. So I think both of them want to do it. Both of them have that explorer- uh, gene in them that, uh, they can't repress. And then I think it's capturing the, the confidence of your crew. And, you know, with Kirk, I think sort of following his bold, uh, to use that, that word, um, his bold leap into things and, and sort of his never say die attitude. And Picard, sort of a more reasoned, almost logical approach to things. But even though, Picard isn't as exuberant as Kirk. His quiet confidence, I think, means that anybody on that ship will follow him into any situation. So, yeah, and I have none of these qualities. (laughs) I just write the the adventures. I don't actually.
2: Do you at least love Earl Grey tea like Picard does?
0: I actually do. I actually do. Just if you want to get really nerdy, I prefer Lady Grey tea.
2: Oh,
0: But I do like it. uh, I do like it hot. Yeah. So, so ah, there
2: we so, go. So so you do have some qualities there.
0: I guess I do share something.
1: <laughs> one step at a time, Mike. One step at <laughs> yeah, a time. Okay. <laughs> now, one of the, you speak about the team dynamic and stuff like that. That's actually one of the things I love about Star Trek in general. But in Boldly Go, we see that the team's kind of fractured after the events of Star Trek Beyond. So how difficult is it, not just as Rybert as a fan, to bring that to life?
0: Yeah, it's tricky. I think, actually, one of the things I try to bring to it is, is being a comics fan as well as a Trek fan. Um, when you're working on Trek, you realize you're you're writing a team book, like a superhero team, right? And you have to give everybody a little bit of, bit of attention, a, a little bit of a moment as much as you can, because it's very easy with Trek to let Kirk and Spock dominate everything and sort of play with their dynamics. But you want to make sure, and then it's also easy to bring in Bones, um, to play off Kirk and Spock, and her to play playoff with her relationship with Spock in the Kelvin timeline. So you just got to be tr- – you want to make sure you give everybody um, Chekov and Sulu and Scotty and even their their moments. But that's what's fun about it. And actually, the Boldly Go situation coming off Beyond gave us a chance to get away from what we did in the previous series for 60 Issues where everybody's on the same ship, everybody's in the same place. And it was really fun in Boldly Go to split them all up and see what they would do. Um, although, we do want to bring them back into contact with each other, even though they're not all serving on the same ship. You'll see that events conspire to bring people back into each other's orbits, so to speak.
2: And you mentioned Uhura, and I love how Boldly Go expands on Spock and Uhura's relationship by showing Uhura submerging herself deep into Vulcan culture. So what kind of an impact will her learning of the culture have on her and Spock as the series progresses?
0: That is a fantastic question. It's it's actually something that uh, we're working on issues six and, and beyond at this point, and uh, that's something we're going to explore because she, you know, I think even almost more than anybody on the crew is the one that's really hungry and eager to explore other cultures, primarily through their language. That's her expertise and her background but in a way she's got the most open mind of anybody on the ship and when she gets a chance to her relationship with spock to suddenly really dive into vulcan culture in a way that nobody else really could because to be where she is you'd actually have to you have to be in a relationship with a vulcan and vulcans aren't exactly looking to date other species so she's taking advantage of that especially in the unique situation she's in which is that Vulcan is sort of starting again, and it's, it's having to consider what are the most important parts of our society that we are going to promote, uh, that we want to ensure survive on new Vulcan. And so it's a really, it's a potent um, storytelling situation to explore.
1: Not only that, but you've got the dynamic between, you know, of course, Spock's mother. It wasn't easy being an outsider in Vulcan. Now she's the outsider, and they're in the new Vulcan. They're bringing in an outsider again, it seems like.
0: Yeah, definitely, and that's why it's nice to have Sarek around. Obviously, the Vulcan who did marry a human and was able to see that, and that's why I, we we put that moment in issue one where Sarek says, you know, I think he tells Spock, I think your mother and her would really get along. And not just because they're both human, but because, you know, They share a lot of the same open-minded curiosity. So, yeah, we're definitely going to see how that impacts their relationship. Because Spock, even though he feels an obligation to Vulcan, and you saw that in Beyond as well, he's still human. And, you know, if his girlfriend is suddenly like, hey, you know what, let's live on Vulcan. I love Vulcan. I'll move to Vulcan. <laughs> is it, like is it really a foregone conclusion that Spock wants to live on Vulcan? I'm not so sure about that.
1: House Hunters New Vulcan. <laughs>
0: Sorry. Yeah, How- House Hunter's New Vulcan. Yeah.
1: <laughs> we're talking. To, we're talking to writer Mike Johnson of Star Trek Boldly Gun number two, which will be available on November the 9th, Issue 1, already out at your local shops and from idwpublishing.com. Now, Mike, one of the things that I love about the first book, actually, is the Romulan First Officer on Kirk's new ship. So how much will that play a role in the story going
2: forward?
0: Very much so. Valis is great, and I'm glad that um, the powers that be with CBS let me do it because I just thought it was... You know, I'll I'll be totally honest. Like I always feel like Star Trek should reflect what's going on in our world today, and obviously there's these big debates about um, immigration and refugees and, um, you know, I had this thought of what would that look like in the Star Trek world and, well, you know, the Romulans are perceived as enemies, but what if there was a Romulan couple that wanted to escape the Empire and, you know, they'd seek harbor um, in the Federation and on Earth in particular, and what if their child was born on Earth, almost an anchor baby, so to speak, Um, and if she grew up, thinking of herself as a Terran, but always feeling slightly out of place because she's got the ears. People know her parents were Romulans and, you know, can we really trust them? So we're going to see those things play out. And, And in her case in particular, she wanted to join Starfleet and she's been so good at her job that she's now the first officer of a, of a, you know, big starship one of the one of the ships that's on the front lines of getting out there and exploring so we're going to see her interplay both with kirk uh, and the rest of the characters as well as her wrestling with what's going to happen um, when she eventually meets uh the romulan empire so definitely keep her eye on, your eye on Dallas.
2: so when you do get the okay to have this whole storyline with the Romulans. Like when you get the you know the powers to be say okay you can do this how much of a pressure is that off your shoulders?
0: It's great, and and the best part of it is I have a, a great working relationship with John Van Sitters at CBS, uh, and Kessler uh, who oversees the books for Paramount, and uh, my awesome editor Sarah Gatos. We've been working together now for, gosh, well with with John and Reesa I've been working with them since the first movie came out. And then Sarah's been with us a few years now, so there's just a trust level, and I know right. that if I suggest something, if I suggest something and they don't go for it, you know, they have really good reasons for it, so I don't feel like, oh, you know, they're, yeah, you know, when there's that respect there, it's like, oh, okay, I understand why this won't work, and then right. they know, they know if I come up with something that's a little out of the box, I can hopefully deliver it in in a way that's going to make sense and not reflect badly, right on the franchise so it's it's really I think having a small team is is really key
2: and one of the most famous moments of course in Star Trek canon is Kirk's defeating of the Kobayashi Maru so here's a question for you what's an experience you've had in the car where driving somewhere felt like piloting through your own Kobayashi Maru <laughs> it's
1: called the 405
0: Freeway oh well, <laughs> yeah the <it's laughs> 405 Freeway
1: not the first time we've heard that on this show
0: oh yeah you guys yeah no it's yeah, every day. I come I go back and forth between LA and, and San Diego a lot. So uh yeah, no, I could drive it. I could do the COVID, my own Kobe Kobe Ashimaru, I could do a blindfold at this point, I think. But it's definitely it's a no win situation.
1: Yeah. Jeez, man, talk about shields up.
0: No kidding. Yeah. Red alert. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I have to merge and I don't <laughs> yeah right? problem
1: is yeah. you can't hand over the con either that's the only that's no, the only no. bad part
0: no no absolutely not you're the houseman and the captain you don't actually have foot on torpedoes
2: <laughs>
0: yeah it's <laughs> only a the, matter of time
2: I like <laughs> hate Disneyland and they're going like 40 miles an hour on that 405 <laughs> I want to blow them up but I can't
0: oh. <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> that's, why I play, that's why I play GTA 5, because it's a really good recreation like, go. of Los Angeles. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's Call like that a that really
1: me. good psychiatric, yeah. It's a nice it's a nice release from reality. That's exactly.
0: <laughs> the, I could do yeah. all the things on
1: here that I can't do on the real road. Yeah, <laughs> good for you. Now, Mike, you've written so many great Star Trek stories for IDW over the years. Is there a period of time or a cast of characters you haven't worked with yet that you just really want to tackle at this point?
0: Well, I'm a next-generation baby. Like, I remember watching that tuning in when it first premiered, being real excited about it, and I love those characters. I've gotten to do a little bit of Picard, um, but uh I love those characters. I, yeah, if I was going to do another, um, another cast, it would be them, but I think one of the benefits of having written the Calvin crew at this point for a long time is that, um, there's still more to do. Like there's when you're when you're with these characters for that for that long, you start to explore different facets of their personality and in a way that you can't really do in movies. Um, and since there's not a Kirk Spock T V show on right now, I would just try to have fun and and make readers hopefully readers have fun reading adventures that are a little more uh in depth character-wise, than you can do in a movie. And that's something I hope to do in Boldly Go is make it more of almost a soap opera kind of feel where events lead into other events lead into other events and not so much purely episodic sort of one shot. So, uh, yeah, it's a blessing. And, um, yeah, I, I, I feel like I had the best job in the world.
2: And you know something that really stuck out to both me and James uh, is the amazing capturing of cadence and tone when it comes to dialogue of certain characters, especially Chekhov. So, how does it feel working on a series that not only showcases the importance of proper writing but also lettering as well?
0: Yeah, lettering is a huge part, and I, th- I think you know one of the things I try to do. I, I was really lucky to work for the guys that wrote the original scripts, so I was able to see. On page on the page, mm-hmm. how it how it read. So it's one thing to kind of hear, you know, to watch the movies a ton, which I've done, and and that's a great way to get the cadence and stuff. But to actually see how it's written is really important. So I've got the scripts for the first two movies um, that over the years that I've used just as touch points, and and then um, I think the good thing is this cast is so great, and they each bring their own. Unique spin to it that just kind of capturing it, it, they almost make it easy because they're very distinct in their performances. Um, and then with lettering, the thing with Chekhov is you have to avoid uh, like every making him sound almost like he's French, like Captain Z Klingons are approaching yeah. starboard <laughs> bow. <you know? laughs> so, I sort of have flexible rules, I sort of play it by ear. You know, he always says Captain, Captain, That's he has to do that, and then usually uh, any V sound is a W, so like very is wary, like Victor is Victor kind of thing, um, and I'll actually like, as I'm writing in Star Wars or something, sometimes I say stuff out loud, and I just have to be careful, like I'll I'll say a line of dialogue out loud as I write it and uh, get weird looks, so, um, <laughs> yeah, you just have to be careful about it.
1: <laughs> just another Starbucks adventure. <laughs> yeah,
0: exactly. Yeah, full of freaks. free. freaks.
1: 50 years later Star Trek still going strong and proof of that is Star Trek Boldly Go issue number one available right now number two comes out on November the 9th you can find them at your local shops or digitally make sure you go to idwpublishing.com to get all the info you need if you haven't seen Star Trek Beyond yet it's okay you can read this comic without seeing the movie just wanted to let you know that it's writer Mike Johnson
2: thank you so much for helping us celebrate 50 years of Star Trek
0: Thanks, guys. This was
2: great. Yeah, James, I think that, you know, in anybody's life, the real Kobayashi Maru is that 405 freeway in Los Angeles. And, hey, if you haven't driven on it, stay the fuck off it. Yeah, I haven't,
1: and I am going to try and avoid it like the plague when I take my first trip to L.A. That's, that's what I'm saying.
2: Yeah, except that, you know, unlike the, the real Kobayashi Maru in the Star Trek, you know, canon... You can't cheat the 405. There's no way you can. would will be like Joseph Gordon-Levitt
1: in Premium Rush and just bike it hardcore. <laughs> right?
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. Uh, but, I mean, you know, it was funny having Mike Johnson on talk, of course, about Star Trek boldly go. And, again, as we've talked about in the interview, you know, 50 years of Star Trek, man. I mean, it can't, I mean you know, we wrap our heads around, like, you know, Batman getting so many years and, you know, all these different characters. I mean, just for an IP, I think, as well-known as memorable Star Trek, for it to still be, to this day, very popular. And I think that that's big because, you know, when it comes to, like, certain superhero characters, they're always getting reborn and, and they're having their own stories come out all the time, even with movies. But Star Trek is kind of like... Especially when you're dealing with like Captain Kirk and stuff that goes back decades, you know what I'm saying? You're hooking people on decades old stuff like that, you know? Totally. And and I think the mark of anything like that that
1: tells you how well it's done over the years is you hear 50 years and your brain says, wow, it really feels like it's been longer. And right. that's in a good way because you feel like you've gotten so much stuff over the years and so much stuff that you remember like vividly, not just, you know, you have to have somebody remind you of a couple things and you go, oh yeah, that's right. No, Star Trek is one of those things where you just remember so many things vividly, like the Kobayashi Maru and stuff like that that you mentioned. So I, I think that that's the mark of any good franchise, is that it's memorable. And 50 years... They've given us so much. I can only imagine what we're gonna get in the next fifty or twenty-five or whatever happens, Right. you know. Well, remember,
2: remember as we talked about last week, you know, we're gonna be getting Star Trek Discovery coming to CBS All Access as At well. At some point. At some point. <laughs> but I mean I think a reason why Star Trek has been around for fifty years and you're seeing people, you know, especially kids, you know, dress up as Spock and, you know, Kirk and Uhura and Sulu as well is because the show in of itself Broke so many barriers in terms of social barriers. I mean, the casting of George Takei as Sulu, you know, having a, a really awesome and, and front and center Asian American character on television. Uhura, you know, playing by Nichelle Nichols. I believe you also had the first uh, interracial kiss on television. Yep. Yep. You, I was just going to say that. Yeah, with, with, with Uhura and Kevin uh, Kirk. And so, I mean, you know, you look at all these social barriers and that's why I think Star Trek has also maintained its dominance over these past 50 years because it's just all the ground has broken, not just for uh, people who are different minorities, but just for television in general. And, and just
1: like Mike was saying, Star Trek has a way of tackling social issues without even letting you feel like it's tackling social right. issues. And it's so subliminal, and, and I think that that is such a good thing that they're doing. They're tackling these issues without, you know, just shoving it right in your face, which sometimes can be off putting, but they're still doing it. In in a way that's going to be noticed and going to be remembered, you know?
2: Well, not just that, but, you know, really quickly before we wrap up, it took risk during a time, you know, the 60s, where, you know, people were still kind of wondering, can we take certain risks like that? You know, today it's nothing. Today, you know, it was 2016. But, I mean, back then, it's like a lot of, you know, pressure was on if we do take it this way from the writers to the networks itself. But, I mean... Again, it just shows just its its true dominance and why it's so important, plays an important role in a lot of people's lives.
1: It's a lot easier to be different now than it was de- easier to be different in 1960s. I can tell right. you that right now. I think we can agree on that. So right. absolutely, for that show to do the stuff that it did, I mean,
2: bravo in the shows and the movies. And that's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down Nerdy Podcast. And thanks to Mike Johnson for coming on, talking about Star Trek, boldly go, course, some IDW publishing, go pick it up. It's an amazing series. Again, if you haven't seen Star Trek Beyond, you can still pick up this book because guess what? You're not going to be lost by it at all. It's, It's a really, really great pickup and starting point. Great job all around by Mike and the crew. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy podcast. If you want more of us on social media, hit us up on Facebook at facebook.com slash down and nerdy. We're also on Twitter at downandnerdy757. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Merck with one arm. You can't miss me. I'm the only one armed man. It looks like in a Deadpool costume, so there's no way you could possibly miss me on social media. James, where can people find your go- goat to eat self?
1: I'm a James Ace with him. That's W-I-T-H-A-M. And hey, if you are missing any of that, you can't find the one arm guy, one arm guy in the Deadpool costume. It's okay. Go to our website, Nerdypodcast.com. There's an about us section. You can get all that information right on there. Also, we write two other reviews that go on our website. They're up there right now. You can go read them other than the reviews we did earlier on the show. You can find out everything that happened this week on the show. You want to buy Star Trek Boldly Go? Easy. Go to the this week's section of downandnerdypodcast.com.
2: And as always, passive comic book reading. Always back on board your comics. Live long and prosper. And as Spock says as well, I will always be your friend.